Welcome back to Buddhist Solutions for Life's Problems, a podcast by SGI USA on which we explore how to apply SGI Nichiren and Buddhism to the challenges of daily life. We're your hosts, Jihi Jolly and Ayumi Inoue. Before we begin, for anyone who's new to the show or to the practice, SGI Nichiren Buddhism is based on the practice of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, which is a way to call forth what we refer to as our Buddhahood, unlimited reserves of courage, wisdom, and compassion to navigate daily life. To learn more about the basics of Buddhist practice, you can visit worldtribune.org. Today's episode is about sustainable happiness. What does Buddhism say about happiness? And more importantly, how do we access it and sustain it? But before we jump in, Jihi, let's do a quick review of the two basic definitions of happiness according to Buddhism. Yes. So for anyone who's new to the practice, in Nichiren Buddhism, the happiness we seek is termed absolute happiness, a state of life in which living itself is a joy, despite the ups and downs we might experience day to day. This is in contrast to relative happiness, which is a feeling stimulated by external factors like getting what you want, a new job, a partner, or things just working out in your favor. Relative happiness is dependent on external factors, and so chasing it can feel like living on a roller coaster. On the contrary, absolute happiness is a state of life that we cultivate internally. And I'll add that without this deeper view of happiness, a sustainable happiness, the search for meaning and self fulfillment can set us up for false expectations and disappointment over and over again. For instance, if you think, I would be so much happier if my partner or this other person would change. Rather, embracing a view of happiness that's rooted on Buddhist practice or what we call faith in the mystic law, we actually get to experience genuine fulfillment. It's almost as if our level of happiness is determined by the extent to which we can develop our internal spiritual core. Right. And of course, at different times in life, difficulties with our health, family, or work can challenge us so much that happiness feels out of our reach. And on top of that, with all the societal, political, and environmental issues going on, many people have a bleak outlook for the future. But Buddhism offers a profound set of tools to deepen our own happiness, one that is based on practicing both for oneself and for others. And it's definitely not as simple as being easygoing or more optimistic. So today, you're going to hear the stories of two individuals who help us examine what sustainable happiness is, and better yet, what cultivating real happiness looks like. Just a note that today's episode is based on the March 2022 Living Buddhism feature, which outlines the six conditions of happiness based on Ikeda Sensei's guidance. And we'll have all references in the show notes, so feel free to go back to them for another read. I can honestly tell you that there's a big difference in terms of your life capacity when you're only focusing on yourself versus when you're able to expand to these other people. There's always someone around you who could use your help. 
That's Rachel Salaminson of Bristol, Virginia. When we asked her about happiness, her entire story was about compassion. And we learned that those two things go hand in hand. And this is something she learned through a profound experience with challenging family relationships, which she used her Buddhist practice to transform. We sometimes think the practice is doing morning and evening gongyo, which it is, and sharing Namyoho Rengekyo with other people, which it is, attending meetings, which it is, and studying. But really, it all boils down to having compassion, developing a compassionate heart. And these activities that we do support our ability to develop that deep sense of compassion, which enables us to be happy no matter what. There are six conditions for happiness that Ikeda Sensei describes. They are fulfillment, possessing a profound philosophy, conviction, living cheerfully and vibrantly, courage, and tolerance. While each are equally important, the condition of tolerance or compassion shows us that genuine happiness is not a self-centered pursuit. From a Buddhist point of view, even if we possess fulfillment and cheerfulness, without the effort to support others and expand their life for others, there is no true happiness. And, well, that ultimately means doing our own human revolution. I think the, the human revolution part is overcoming the blame game, not blaming the economy, other people, you know, a customer that didn't give you a big project that you thought he should have or whatever. Uh, being able to keep focused on what's really your goal. My goal was I wanted to just break through my own limitations and I wanted to see my employees, you know, succeed and prosper and uh, just want to be a winner in life. And this is Jim Kromf of Kensington, California, a small town near Berkeley. Jim, too, shares with us a powerful experience of developing conviction in the power of his life and Nam-myoho Rengekyo through family and business challenges, and how, in retirement, he's discovered a new dynamic chapter of his life. Rachel and Jim both talk us through two of the biggest challenges to our happiness, our relationships with the people around us, especially loved ones, and situations in which we're faced with impossibly difficult circumstances that seem out of our control. But as you'll see, our Buddhist practice has the power to make the impossible possible, and genuine fulfillment and joy is absolutely achievable in a sustainable way. Before we jump into Rachel's story, let's start with a key term for anyone new to Buddhism, human revolution. Here's a quote that Rachel pointed to that helped her understand this concept. Human revolution, in the simplest terms, can be defined as a sustained commitment to awaken to the greatness of our own lives and acknowledge that same greatness in others. Through engaging in this process of inner transformation, we can develop in our lives the compassion, courage, and wisdom necessary to bring about an age that protects the dignity of life. By the way, Rachel made time for our conversation during a busy weekday evening. 
So if you occasionally hear her kids or her dog in the background, that's why. Okay, for Rachel, this definition of human revolution, which appears in the October 2020 Living Buddhism, summarizes her journey of searching for the answers about life. How are we interconnected? What is equality? And how do we navigate life's ups and downs? We all might have our own set of questions about life, just like Rachel, but in grappling with our challenges and searching for the answers, we can go through the inner transformation required to experience sustainable, absolute happiness. So let's start at the beginning of Rachel's story where her early childhood experiences shaped her questions about life. I grew up in a immigrant household. Um, our culture, in terms of how you raise children, is very different than the American culture of how you raise children. And that was my understanding and the explanation that I allowed myself to believe to explain all of the emotional abuse and the physical abuse and other abuses that took place in my household as I was growing up. And, you know, but I was always very grateful to my parents. They worked really hard and I felt as if they shielded us from doing the kind of work that they do by doing it themselves and then giving us a chance to get educated. And my dad is a pastor, so I grew up in a very religious environment and the friends that they had were also from the same church. Um, and yet we went to these secular schools and so inside our house we were Haitian, but outside we're mingling with America. These circumstances led her to start looking into other religions for answers. She felt her family's religion could no longer provide. And it was during an event on racism and health in 1996 that she encountered a man who would go on to introduce her to his girlfriend, who became a great friend and the one to introduce Rachel to Nam-myoho-renge-kyo and the philosophy of Nichiren Buddhism. I was trying to find my place in this world. Like, I was really trying to understand what was the framework that was gonna allow me to live a good life, a life in which I contributed to the maximum. And I was not able to use the Ten Commandments. It was not speaking to the issues that I would face, the decisions that I had to make. The Ten Commandments couldn't tell me what college to go to, couldn't tell me if I should do a master's in public health or, or go straight to medical school. It couldn't tell me these things, and yet these were serious and important questions that I had. So I became aware of the fact that I needed a different framework, that my home life had not prepared me to go out in the world and be productive. And when I learned about Buddhism, I mean, honestly speaking, I wasn't trying to be happy. <laughs> just, I was, you know, at that time, I was also very, very concerned about justice. Like that was the most important thing to me. I was becoming aware of so many injustices in the world. There were all kinds of issues, but I was really focused on racial and immigration injustices. And I didn't know how to tackle those issues. I, I wanted to tackle them 100%. So one of the very first things that captivated me about Buddhism was their definition of equality. Like once that was explained to me that Buddhism fundamentally believes in equality of all people and that that equality was based on an understanding of the potential of life, I was hooked. It goes so far beyond just you're equal irrespective of your skin color 
or you know or you're special because of this or because of that it basically said that life itself is fundamental and life itself is equal no matter its manifestations but rachel told her friend that she had no interest in being converted to buddhism eventually her friend's consistent support reached her and she reluctantly began chanting convinced that it wasn't going to work for her and ready to prove her friend wrong she did whatever her friend said to do chant 5 minutes and read some study material and before she knew it she saw her life transforming although i wasn't concerned about happiness when i became a buddhist part of what was going on was that i was afraid to be happy because i had reached a point in my emotional turmoiled life where i might wake up in the morning and experience all the beauty that was around me and the fresh air and the beautiful leaves and walk to work and be in high spirits and i knew that by the end of the day i would crash and i would feel terrible and so it got to a point where in the morning i i kind of restrained myself from feeling this freedom this this beauty because i was afraid about the crash and one of the things that i noticed that started to happen as i chanted more was that i was no longer afraid to experience this joy the joy of the morning the joy of the fresh air and then i stopped crashing and then the other thing was that when i had a big problem i would go to sleep i would just run away from it go to sleep put the covers over my head and after chanting for within just a few months i stopped using that as a mechanism for dealing with my problems so although i wasn't consciously aware that i was looking for happiness obviously you know i was and i was becoming happier she made great strides in her education and career which were two things she felt hopeless about before she started chanting These changes convinced Rachel of the power of chanting Namyo Horenge Kyo and she began taking on responsibilities as a young women's leader in the SGI and supported others. Then, while she was doing her PhD, a new challenge emerged and changed her course of life and practice. While I was doing my PhD, I had a conference that I attended and so I invited my sister who is 10 years younger than me. to come in and hang out because you know through chanting I felt like I really wanted to connect with her more and then at some point she confided in me the her experience of abuse and it totally floored me if I felt like the rug had been pulled from under my feet I had told myself that I had gotten as far as I've gotten because of the kind of parents that I had our parents were strict but they loved us and so everything all the beatings because they loved us <laughs> and now all of a sudden um i i realized that that wasn't the whole story and i didn't have another story to replace it and you know i felt like the very foundation of my being was destroyed i had nothing but even as i felt that way i knew i had to take care of my sister and by the time she and i were talking about the details of what had happened to her she was already 17 and when i heard that i just felt like she needed to get out and that was something i could do so we came up with a plan and um she was able to to leave and then it was like all hell broke loose because my parents felt like they were exposed and um within our culture that exposure apparently means a whole lot more than the actual crime itself it was just devastating the whole thing was really devastating and i was getting my phd and working full time 
And I was suddenly a guardian to this 17-year-old wonderful human being who'd gone through so much. This was not in her life's plan. Now, in her mid-twenties, she found herself looking after her sister and dealing with a deafening silence that permeated her family. I couldn't face my dad, so I just stopped talking to him. I just couldn't. I was so devastated. I was so angry. I couldn't see how I could have a relationship with him, given what had happened. And I felt like I had to take sides to really help my sister recuperate. I felt as if I had to make sure she understood that I was fully, fully in her corner. So that was convenient for me because it meant that I could just easily stop talking to my dad and, you know, not deal with it. And so I did that. I did that for four years. I felt very justified. And, you know, anybody would agree with me, <laughs> you know. And um, But then I really had to do a lot of daimoku because here I am. I need to defend my dissertation. I... Um, I had to stop working full-time and just work only part-time because now all of a sudden I had to go like parent-teacher conferences and it was like suddenly I inherited this daughter. But we made it through that year and she went off to college and then I started to live my life. After completing her dissertation, Rachel followed her passion for justice and began working for a U.S.-based global health company with her first stop in Rwanda in 2003, nine years after the end of a genocide. By the time I was in Rwanda, I had been practicing for about six or seven years. I had already had experience as a YWD chapter leader. And I knew the power of chanting like, like deep in my soul. I had seen my sister recuperate. I had seen us pull through this really hard year. And I'd had so much support, you know, throughout the whole thing. It really, my district just engulfed us in, with so much love and attention. And so I had all this support, and all of a sudden I was in Rwanda, in the middle of nowhere. There were no members, and yet there was this heavy karma in this country. It was just a lot to take in as a young person, and driving down the streets of Kigali and seeing all the prisoners would dress in pink, and seeing these prisoners working outside, and knowing, knowing that they were in prison because they had killed their neighbors, and their children, and their wives and their friends. It was just really a lot. So I chanted a lot. And then, you know, I was doing a little bit of studying and of course, this whole concept of equality kept on coming to my mind. These people too had a Buddha nature and I really struggled. <laughs> I felt like I had a crisis of faith. I felt like I couldn't believe that these people who had committed such heinous crimes were also Buddhas. They were just as much a Buddha as the victims and as the survivors, you know? And so I took it to task. I was like, you know, when I started practicing Buddhism, you know, I mean, I jumped ship from Christianity to this whole new religion. It was a very authentic move. So I wasn't going to continue to practice and be inauthentic. So I had to resolve this. I had to know if I believed in the Buddha nature or not. And if I didn't believe in Buddha nature, I needed to stop practicing. And so one day I was chanting and then suddenly I got this thought, wow, you're working really hard to understand about the Buddha nature of these people that you have no relationship to. Like, what about your own father? I was fighting so hard for Rwanda, but I wasn't fighting as hard for my own life. And then I was like, oh, okay. So I picked up the phone. I called my dad right away. 
At this point, it had been five years since she cut ties with her father. But that phone call was just the start of their healing process, and it would ultimately take six more years of gradual, painstaking efforts to reach a new level in their relationship. We started the slow journey of, you know, just talking. I got to a point where I could talk to him for a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And until we were able to have a full-on conversation, and then we kept on going and kept on going, and you know, eventually, I think it was several years later that I was finally able to ask my dad, "Well, why did you do it? Like, what was going on with you?" And I wasn't even able to really—I、um, sobbed through the question. It was just still so hard for me. And I remember he just stopped the car and he said, "You know." If I had the courage to kill myself, I would. And then I realized just how much he was suffering because of what he had done. And still, it took several more years, you know, before I became concerned about his suffering. It took until last summer. When we or a loved one have been wronged. It's easy to never open our door to the perpetrator, and it can feel impossible to ever feel whole or trust others again. A Buddhism teaches that more powerful than any emotion or circumstance we experience is our own Buddha nature—the courage, compassion, and wisdom to create value. Sometimes we might not know the solution or what to do, but as Rachel's experience demonstrates, chanting Nam Myoho Horenge Kyo to deepen our faith in our own and others' Buddha nature can open our eyes to the best course of action and give us the courage to pursue it and persevere. It took me a very, very long time to be able to see that my dad is a person who's human, who made poor choices. Who was operating under a framework that did not lead to his happiness, and who is now suffering a lot as a result, and、um, and so then what can I do when you see when you see it that way finally? So I think it wasn't until this last summer that I had that realization when I went through out the United States and shakabuku to everybody and their mama. <laughs> While she and her dad had been able to dialogue in order to resolve what was in her heart, Rachel needed to focus on her own life and Buddhist practice. And one way she chose to do that was by making a habit of sharing about Buddhism wherever she went. So, on a family road trip across the U.S., she decided to prioritize dialoguing about Buddhism, or planting seeds of the mystic law, as we sometimes refer to it. The habit of Meeting someone, connecting with them, bringing out their their suffering, giving them hope, going on to the next person—you know, connecting. The connections had to be really quick. At a gas station, the cashier, you know, the person serving you coffee. And I really believe that that is the power of life. Life is so powerful that in an instant you can make a connection that can change a life. And so I was going forward with that with that conviction. With Sensei as as my example, seeing how he's able to just really connect and just let that person's life know that you hear them. So after having practiced that for like three or four weeks on the road, right? Then of course, when my dad is talking to me, that naturally comes out, and I was just surprised by it as all because <laughs> that hadn't been the case. You know, it was like I had compassion for everybody. 
except for my dad, you know? It's very easy to have compassion for good people or people whose morals agree with yours, you know? But can you have compassion with someone who is not matching, is not ticking all the boxes? And my dad has been teaching me to have compassion and I haven't been listening. Rachel clarified for us that she didn't shakubuku or share namyo honing yukyo with others, specifically so she can break through with her father. Rather, her practice of sharing Buddhism and connecting life to life with others strengthened and expanded her state of life, and she found herself able to see her father in a new light. I think because I went through so much pain to shakubuku 50 people on a five-week trip, <laughs> You know, that was like my determination, you know. I feel like that allowed me to grow enough so that I could take in what my dad was offering all along. And I could see him as a human being who was suffering. And I feel like my authentic connection to my dad allowed me to take this next stand, which is to say, hey, you know, um, the way that you're communicating with me, the way that you're trying to get me to do things, that's not the right way. So that's just where I am still right now. I do feel like something very deep is shifting, but I feel like this is very much a work in progress. And it's a very deep and profound, very personal experience that is unfolding. To Rachel, it's clear that developing compassion in her life was the key to her experience and the road she is now on. But of course, human revolution is easier said than done. So we asked her if she had any advice for someone going through a painful experience where happiness feels out of reach. Here's what she said. When we have a problem, we fixate on the problem. And sometimes you can't fixate on it because it's too painful. Right? But because of our practice and the structures of our practice, you know, we're chanting morning and evening, we're taking care of members and each other, we're doing shakabuku. I, I now know without a doubt through this experience that you'll come full circle. And by the time you circle back to your own problems, you're gonna have what it takes to transform it. Because that's what happened to me. I think before, if I had said that, it might have been more theory. I don't think I have a problem that is deeper or more profound than this problem with my father. And to see that in this life, before he died, I am able to get a little closer to him again, but on my own terms, on terms that I'm comfortable with, on terms that are authentic, and to know without a doubt that this happened because of my practice, because of my practice of connecting with someone and finding out their suffering because I'm looking for an opportunity to share Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. It was my practice, it is my practice that allowed me to have this conversation, to be able to see that in my dad. So I know because of that, yes, do your practice. If it's too painful, of course, fixate, Determine not to suffer, determine to win. But if it's too painful or too overwhelming to do that, that's okay. Just live your life and practice compassion for anyone you can. It doesn't matter, just practice compassion. You'll come full circle. 
And by the time you get back to it, you'll be ready. Rachel's story really exemplifies one of the six conditions of happiness outlined by Ikeda Sensei, which is tolerance, a broad-minded spirit with which we can embrace and appreciate all people, regardless of our perceived differences. Going further, the essence of tolerance is the Buddhist spirit of compassion, to acknowledge others' Buddha nature and awaken them to the mystic law. Sensei writes, what gives someone the strength to go on living? It seems to me that it is human bonds, the desire to live for the sake of others. As long as we are wrapped up in ourselves, there is no happiness. When we courageously take action for others, the wellspring of our own life is replenished. Through encouraging others, we elevate our life condition and broaden our reach to embrace more people. Nietzsche and Daishonin exemplify this spirit of tolerance by striving to lead even those who persecuted him to Buddhahood. He wrote, I pray that before anything else, I can guide and lead the ruler and those others who persecuted me. And we can see that this spirit is alive in Rachel as she continues to share Buddhism with others and transforms her own and family's karma into a great mission for Kosen Rufu. Now let's turn to the story of Jim Crump, whose experiences span many decades, but are held together by an incredibly powerful theme, conviction, another one of the six conditions for happiness. Jim is now retired and engaged in a fresh challenge, becoming a mediator for civil harassment and small claims issues in the superior court system, which is his way of contributing to his local community after becoming a retiree. But this sense of purpose and a desire for contribution begins with his journey in Buddhism when he was introduced to chanting Namyo Horenge Kyo as a teenager. It was just an incredible introvert and just kind of a hopeless young 17-year-old kid, no direction in life. And honestly, the first thing that I noticed when I got a daily practice of chanting going was that I just started to feel completely different. I, 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 don't, I mean, I don't remember ever really feeling happy before that, other than if I got a, some amazing gift for Christmas or something like that. And I just started, I mean, I just started to smile and, you know, like engage with people. And that was new to me. I'm just such a terminal introvert. So that was really what started to show me that wild chanting was really having some amazing effect on me. The turning point came for Jim when he connected with other young men in the practice in San Francisco who encouraged him to participate in SGI activities regularly, which he began doing on a weekly basis. A year later, he was blown away by how different his life felt. Beginning years of practicing, especially for a young person, are extremely difficult because you're still not really sure what Buddhism is going to do for you. And even if you have this, you know, feeling like, hey, SGI is working for world peace and trying to create some, you know, good things in the world, you're, you're kind of struggling with your own lack of confidence and self-worth and wow just being around this group of young men who were like chanting and serious about improving their lives and you know challenging their careers and 
poverty, you know, all the problems that we had, uh, just inspired me and made me kind of start waking up. And um, I think that was just a really important turning point for me and really what sustained me the first few years of my practice. It just was just a whole new world for me, suffering through many challenges, but ultimately enjoying being able to you know, challenge things in my life and feel like I was moving in a positive direction. And I very distinctly remember when I realized, wow, it's been a whole year. I'm still doing this. <laughs> it's amazing. Over the years, he's had a lot of experiences based on chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. So we decided to call him to help us understand what sustainable happiness really means and what it looks like in his own life. Here's what he shared. I think I, I would actually start by defining what it's not because I think we all have the deep tendency to kind of depend on environmental conditions for our happiness. And that's actually not sustainable happiness because every, everything in the world is constantly changing. Even what would be an ideal environment for me today is completely different than what I would have thought of in the early days of practicing. So I think any thought of happiness that depends on people or situations in your environment, that's not sustainable happiness. So what can you sustain? Well, I think the only thing you can really sustain is your own inner life, you know, developing an inner life that is not dependent on environmental conditions to be happy or even to have self-esteem and, and, you know, conviction in your own life to fight my way through all kinds of personal problems. Uh, you just develop this inner core that uh, is bigger than your problem. Jim then explained that this kind of inner life and the ability to experience joy doesn't require external simulation. It's a feeling of just being able to walk down the street and feel happy, capable, and like you'll never give up, rather than a positive feeling that comes from a superficial connection with something in the environment. But he didn't start out with this kind of inner life. In fact, his first big lesson in building sustainable happiness came many years ago, early in his marriage, when he and his wife were going through severe marital issues. So, you know, I think a deep love there, but uh, it was just so challenging for us to live together. And um, we got to the point where you know, my wife was constantly talking about divorce and we had small kids and I was like, I had this super high pressure job and I, I just felt like I was going crazy. And um, so I chanted for a long time and I realized one day that I was just chanting out of anger at my wife, that he really didn't have any compassion for her. I never chanted a single for her happiness. I was just caught up in my own suffering. And, you know, I read this writing of Nietzsche, which is called Lessening the Karmic Retribution, where he, you know, he talks about if you don't change your karma in this lifetime, you're going to continue to suffer in the future. But if you experience extreme hardship in this life, the sufferings of hell will vanish instantly. 
Having both come from families that experienced discord, Jim knew that this was an opportunity for profound karmic change that he didn't want to lose. So he began to tackle his situation using two of the most basic aspects of Buddhist practice, sustained daimoku, which is consistently chanting nam myoho renge kyo, and study, in particular, reading the writings of Nichiren Daishonin over and over again. I realized that if I didn't transform this karma to be in conflict with my wife specifically and my family, I was just going to keep experiencing it over and over again. As I was chanting, I had this realization, I mean, incredibly painful realization that there was nothing I could do to change my life. If I wanted the situation to be different, I had to change something about myself. And of course, I was completely innocent of all, you know, <laughs> guilt and the problems we were having, in my point of view. Uh, it was all her fault. But I just realized I can't, I, I, the only person in this relationship I have any control over is me. That was so painful. And I just had to decide. I just had to chant until I could decide I'm going to change whatever it is in my life that I need to change to overcome this situation. And then one day I had the realization, you know, I can't just chant about it. I have to take some action too. So I just decided, okay, I'm going to be the one that makes it different. I'm going to be the one to just like break through the wall with negativity between us and be able to give her a hug, say I love you. I mean, just not go down that spiral of anger and hostility. And uh, boy, that was a huge struggle. Within several months, however, he found that the environment of the home was changing for the better. Today, he and his wife have been happily married for 44 years. She tells me on a regular basis, she's never been happier in her whole life. I mean, we just have an amazing life together. We're both retired, enjoying things. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So the lesson I got from that is, you know, famous Buddhist principle, oneness of self and environment. But it really is true. When you change, the environment changes. And, you know, we think of people as being kind of static, but people are not static. Everybody's relationship is unique between two people. I mean, if you think about it, that you're the same person, but relationship you have with everybody in your environment is actually different. And when you change, that relationship changes. It's just so phenomenal. This experience helped Jim begin to develop the conviction that would both be challenged and carry him through his practice throughout the rest of his life. The biggest challenge being financial, when he and his wife, who eventually worked together on an international sales and distribution business for U.S.-based manufacturers, dealt with incredible losses and setbacks. While the business initially did very well, over the course of it, he hit dire financial situations twice. First in 1999, when the business lost funding for two years straight, and then again in the years following the 2008 recession. We spent three years losing money every month. I mean, the first year, our sales went down like 40%. You know, we're, we're in a very competitive business. It's, you know, you're, we're selling 
pipe and valves marked up 5, 10, 15 percent, you know, but that's just like totally unsustainable. So I'm canning my way through this first year going next year, it'll be better. Well, next year it got worse. In the third year, you got so bad that, yeah, it was completely unsustainable. And my, my wife and I couldn't even pay our own salaries for months and months at a time. My wife was the CFO of the company. And we lost our bank line of credit. So if you're in the kind of business where you buy stuff and then you resell it, you, it's pretty tough to function without a line of credit. And uh, so it was just absolutely desperate. And, uh, you know, the first time that we went through that, 99, 2000, my, my wife was actually not chanting at that time. She was so pessimistic. It's just so painful. So anyway, we came out of that. The next time around, my wife was chanting, oh, man, what a difference. She saw, you know, a different way of looking at the problem. She actually came up with a solution. And... I'm telling you, that was one of the most painful times of my whole life. (laughs) It was just, and by the way, we kept all our employees, never missed a payroll, paid their health insurance, made therefore 1K contributions that we were committed to. Uh, But we, you know, we couldn't even pay ourselves. And we're just like going into debt deeper every month. Somehow, the company was able to get a project that brought them enough income to survive. And Jim and his wife spent the next several years, in his words, crawling on glass just to get back to being able to operate normally. Eventually, they decided it was too much to continue handling and that it was time to try and sell the company. Trying to sell a little export company is pretty challenging. There's no hard assets. All you have is your customer list, you know, your relationships with customers, with vendors, your employees, your systems that you work with. And the conventional thinking is when the owner leaves, there's really no more company there. But once again, Jim decided to focus on chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. And one day while chanting, he had an epiphany. He thought of a company who could be the ideal buyers if they were interested and saw any value in paying for the company. I chanted about it and I went to visit them. They were in another state and they thought about it and decided they were interested. So we went through this like maybe 15 month process of due diligence and negotiating. And in the end, they bought the company. They paid actually double what it had, the valuation had been. They hired all my employees. They gave them equal or better salaries and benefits. They rented the office from us. They took really good care of my wife. And I worked for them as a consultant for a year and a half, which was like the perfect step down for me because I mean, I just like had my life in this company. I just had worked so hard and, and for 26 years. And on the last day, I didn't have anything to do. I just put my stuff in a box and went around and gave a hug to each one of my wonderful former employees and I went home. <laughs> was... On top of this, Jim and his wife were able to retire with financial security, which he shares that he attributes to nothing but creating good fortune through his Buddhist practice and never giving up. 
But not giving up, especially in dire circumstances, is one of the hardest things to do. When we asked Jim how he was able to continue, he explained that it was because his goal wasn't about the company, but about breaking through his own limitations. When I went through that first period of, you know, the two years of losing money and, you know, as I mentioned, my wife was, you know, really wanted me to just close the company because she was afraid we would lose our house. So I'm, you know, listening to that, like, that's how I started my day every morning before I went to work. And I learned something about myself. And what I learned is I can't quit. And I don't know where that comes from because I never had that before I chanted. I quit all the time on everything. But I just couldn't quit. I just couldn't give up. I, I just had invested in my, my whole life in this company. And I think the, the human revolution part is overcoming the blame game, not blaming the economy, other people, you know, a customer that didn't give you a big project that you thought he should have or whatever. Uh, being able to keep focused on what's really your goal. My goal was I wanted to just break through my own limitations and I wanted to see my employees, you know, succeed and prosper and uh, just want to be a winner in life, you know. What Jim just said about winning is the key point of this episode. In order to develop the strong inner core that powers sustainable happiness, we can't ever be defeated, which is not the same thing as never suffering. As Nietzsche Daishonin writes in the letter, Happiness in This World, suffer what there is to suffer, enjoy what there is to enjoy, regard both suffering and joy as facts of life, and continue chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo no matter what happens. Which, practically speaking, means that sometimes dire circumstances will be extremely painful, but sustainable happiness comes from never giving up anyway. If your basic outlook on life is, if life is challenging, if I'm struggling, I can't be happy, then you're right. You can't be happy. <laughs> so it's not, I mean, it just doesn't depend on the environment. And... The painful challenges that I went through, for instance, with my, you know, family issues, I honestly would not trade those experiences for anything. They all turned into benefit. And I actually relish the opportunity to talk to people who have family conflicts because I know you can change them. You just have to focus on who it is that needs to change. And I think that's the beautiful thing about this Buddhist practice is whatever challenges that you confront, you can find within your own self the life force, the energy, the positivity to battle those things. And when you do that, you change poison to medicine. You don't just escape from your problems. You actually transform them into something that's profoundly beneficial for your life. Hearing Jim share his conviction in this teaching is so powerful, but we do recognize that if you're just starting out, this kind of confidence in your own life can feel out of reach. 
So we asked him if there were any turning points that helped him develop his own conviction. And while there were many, in most cases, he pointed to Buddhist study as the key to developing conviction and persevering in his practice, which includes studying both the writings of Nichiren Daishonin and of Ikeda Sensei. So, to share the crucial turning points in his own resolve, we'll close his story with two key passages that he pointed out. The first comes from a letter called Reply to Kyo, in which Nichiren Daishonin writes, Muster your faith and pray to this Gohonzon. Then, what is there that cannot be achieved? I happened to read that as I was sitting down to chant one day. Those words, muster your faith, just jumped off the page of me. And I realized that having been raised in a, another religion where I was taught to pray to something outside of myself, that actually my approach to chanting was very passive. I just like was chanting to the Gohonzon, waiting for something to change. And I realized when I read that, no, when you sit in front of the Gohonzon, you have to bring something out of yourself. And eventually that transformed into my understanding that when I'm chanting, what I'm really doing is increasing my determination to change myself so that I can change the problem. The second passage he shared is from the book, The New Human Revolution, Volume 2. And I'll read the full passage here. Ikeda Sensei writes, Everyone encounters an impasse at some point in life. Some people may experience a deadlock in business. A couple may come to a standstill in their relationship. Some may feel they have reached a stalemate in raising their children, in their relations with other people, in their propagation activities, or in their study of Buddhist teachings. However, the power of the Gohonzon is immeasurable, as vast as the universe itself. Our lives too have infinite potential. Everything hinges, therefore, on whether we allow our inner determination to become deadlocked. When we truly grasp this point, the path to victory is already open. Should you feel stuck, please challenge to overcome your own weakness, summoning the great power of faith. President Toda said that this is how to discard the transient and reveal the true in our own lives. Therefore, whenever you encounter a difficulty, I hope you will view it as a struggle against an impasse, as a battle against obstacles, and resolving that now is the time to win, boldly forge your path in life as you challenge your destiny head on. The time I read that, I realized like these two huge struggles in my life, you know, with family challenges and business challenges, that on some level, my own inner determination was deadlocked, meaning I wasn't really taking responsibility to change the problem. I was still waiting for something outside of me to change. So that this is really my guidepost, and I try to remember that every day when I sit down to chant. It's what you bring to the Gohonzon when you chant. It's not what the Gohonzon's going to do for you. Let's recap what we learned today. First, sustainable happiness is something that all people have access to because we all possess the Buddha nature within. But unfortunately, as we go through life, we may experience events that shake our ability to believe in ourselves. 
by chanting Namyo Horengekyo every morning and evening, we can strengthen our enlightened nature and become people of conviction and tolerance, key aspects of sustainable happiness. Exactly. And I'll add one passage from Ikeda Sensei where he writes We were born into this world to enjoy life. The Lotus Sutra teaches that this world is a place where living beings enjoy themselves at ease. But in this Saha world filled with suffering, we cannot enjoy ourselves if our life force is weak. That's why we need to exert ourselves in Buddhist practice to bring forth our inner Buddhahood and strengthen our life force. With a strong life force, we can calmly and enjoyably ascend the hilly path of life. The countless hardships and challenges we experience will be transformed into something that adds to our joy in life. Now that I've practiced for a quarter of a century, <laughs> I can't believe it myself, you know? I really think that for me, sustainable happiness is maintaining this homeostasis of happiness and positive energy flowing and maintaining it from day to day. And it stabilizes my home life. You know, my children wake up and they hear the sound of Daimoku and it sets them straight. And my husband goes off to work with the sound of Daimoku in his ear and in his heart. And I start my day with Daimoku. And then I go through my day and I have this equilibrium where I might encounter things and I am free to engage fully. Like, you know, I'm not like holding back. I'm not worried. I'm free to engage fully. And I feel like that ability to maintain that homeostasis to know that my kids are experiencing a positive flow of energy, I feel like that is sustainable happiness. When I grew up, we walked on eggshells. Like when my parents were home, you just didn't know what was gonna happen. And so to, to have the opposite happen in my household, I feel like I've really transformed a lot of karma. And to have that be a state of being from day to day, I think is sustainable happiness. You know, I read a while ago that Sensei had said that you deepen conviction through doing, through taking action. And I have, I bet all of us who are practicing SGI and Asian Buddhism have this experience because we're in this amazing organization where you're doing the practice. I mean, in spite of yourself, you're, you know, you're in this environment where, you know, people are chanting and practicing and, and, uh, sharing Buddhism with other people. And, and when you think about it, that's where convictions really starts to deepen in your own life is when you're doing the actions. You're actually, you know, putting the Buddhist principles into action. The hardest part of conviction is believing in oneself. It's the hardest part for me anyway. And I think that where I turned a corner when I think back on it is when I realize that if I want to be truly happy, if I want to change this situation or that in my life, the, the fundamental key is I have to take responsibility. And I think when you think about it, any aspect of your life that is not going the direction you want it to, you're not taking responsibility for it. You're blaming somebody or something else in your environment. And I think that is the conviction that I've come to. And I don't know how to take responsibility in my own life for problems that actually seem like they're out of my control. 
other than starting the chaining to my Gohon zone. And based on chaining to the Gohon zone, taking some action that's positive, not, not just reacting in my instinctual reaction, which is usually negative. <laughs> In other words, through taking action for the happiness of others, your own conviction, capacity, and happiness deepens. Our philosophy of absolute happiness is one where we cultivate it from within. This means we must resist the tendency to allow other people or our environment to determine whether we become happy. Nietzsche and Buddhism empowers us to take on all of life's challenges and transform them into fuel for limitless growth, where living itself becomes the greatest joy. Before we sign off today, just a quick reminder that for all the references mentioned in today's episode, you can check the show notes. Also, Buddha Solutions is now part of your World Tribune subscription and will be coming out every other month this year. That's all for today, and we'll see you next time.